0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. 2018 is just 40 years after the famous Bakke decision was handed down by the Supreme Court. In that decision, the Supreme Court said colleges and universities should not use racial quotas when admitting students to the university, but they could admit students in such a way as to create a racially diverse student body. Justice Powell, who cast the deciding vote, pointed to the practices at Harvard as constitutionally permissible ones. To some, this decision is an oxymoron. Can diversity on campus be accomplished without some kind of quota, whether openly stated or not? Now, Harvard University finds that it is once again at the center of this question. A group of Asian applicants to Harvard have argued that they've been discriminated against because of the way in which Harvard has pursued its diversity policies. Meanwhile, racial disparity has become a central issue at the elementary and secondary school level. The Obama administration circulated a letter asking districts to avoid suspending and expelling minority students at higher rates than white students. The Trump administration has announced that it is considering withdrawal of that letter, but it has not yet done so. To discuss these hot-button issues, I have with me today Adam White, the director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Thank you, Adam, for joining me on the Education Exchange.
1: Well, thanks, Paul. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, Adam, let's first consider this racially disparate impacts question, that uh, letter that was sent out by the Obama administration. What's the jurisprudence that uh, the Obama administration relied upon uh, when they uh, circulated that letter?
1: Well, this 2014 Dear Colleague letter spelling out the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights Policy on Discipline in Schools, uh, it grabbed hold of the disparate impact theory of racial discrimination, uh, and it rooted it in Titles Four and Six of the Civil Rights Act which in turn then is rooted in Congress's constitutional power to, among other things, uh, pass legislation for the equal protection of laws under the 14th Amendment. Uh, The idea being that under the text of the statutes, the the provisions of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibit discrimination against people on account of race, or more specifically uh, prohibits—I have the language here— For example, on Title IV, uh, saying no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, et cetera, et cetera, programs receiving federal financial assistance. That's the key language. Persons on the ground of race being denied the benefits of education. That the government has interpreted broadly as involving not just explicit direct racial discrimination but also a disparate impact, the idea that even in the absence of explicit racial discrimination, a pattern of conduct or a pattern of results can uh, serve as evidence of underlying racial discrimination.
0: So you don't need to show that any one person has been discriminated against. You nearly need to show that uh, over a large number of cases, there tends to be Uh, A certain pattern, such as in the case of uh, discipline practices, it's much more likely that minority students will be suspended or expelled uh, than white students.
1: Exactly. That was the reasoning of this Dear Colleague letter, the guidance document, where they outlined their new approach. Frankly, disparate impact theories of racial discrimination have been hotly contested in the courts for years and years. For a long time it was winding its way up to the Supreme Court in other contexts outside of education, Um, after a few false starts, a few cases that never reached the Supreme Court, Court, the Supreme Court finally did issue a decision in 2015 in a case called Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs Against Inclusive Communities Project. And as its name suggests, it wasn't an education case, it was a housing case. But there the Supreme Court held that language in the Fair Housing Act language that is fairly similar to the Civil Rights Act, uh, does provide a basis for uh, disparate impact theories of racial discrimination in the housing context. As far as I'm aware, there hasn't been a similar Supreme Court precedent on point in the context of education, and obviously education has always been a a more uh, fraught subject in terms of racial discrimination all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education, so I don't know that that the court would interpret the Civil Rights Act in exactly the same way. But the Supreme Court reaching that similar decision in 2015 under the Fair Housing Act suggests that the court could possibly take a similar turn on education issues. But that said, that's all just pro- that's projecting what could happen in the future. I think key to this 2014 letter, which, as far as I'm aware, the, the, the new education department under President Trump has not rolled back, this guidance document seems pretty thin, definitely thin procedurally, at least in terms of being a guidance document that could be pulled down at any time. And on the question of the substance, there just simply isn't that binding Supreme Court holding justifying uh, the the agency's approach uh, to education.
0: So let's take a look at the procedural question uh, first here, Adam. Uh, In terms of uh, the procedure, how does a letter, a dear colleague letter, as it is called, how does a letter that's being sent out to uh, uh, school superintendents around the country differ from a regulation that's, uh, that appears in the, uh, uh, in the, in the regulatory books of the, uh, of the U.S. government?
1: Well, this is, a, this is a, a subject that's close to my own heart given that I run uh, the program at the Scalia Law School on administrative law. But in administrative law, there's a basic difference between what we call rulemakings, and what we call guidance. Rulemakings is a general catch-all phrase, and I'm talking at a very high level of generality, but by and large, rulemakings occur when an agency publishes a notice in the Federal Register describing a proposed regulation, and then they open the proposal up for public comment, and then people submit comments, and then the agency publishes its response to those comments and publishes its final rule, again, in the Federal Register. Guidance documents are sort of a catch-all term for various kinds of rules and other policymaking that doesn't go through that process.
0: So that Um, process is rather complicated, right? Does it take a year or two to uh, promulgate uh, a a rule in the Federal Register?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's time-consuming but not complicated. It does take time. The agency has to leave a reasonable amount of time for the public to comment, and then the work of replying to those comments takes time and the agency has to provide the public with the studies and other materials it's relying upon but it's not it's not complicated it's just time consuming so it usually takes a couple of years and that's before any judicial review that follows guidance documents like the department of education's dear colleague letters those are the sorts of things that an agency issues without any, generally without any upfront process. They just announce their new policy, and then the public reacts. Now, as a theoretical matter, guidance documents like Dear Colleague letters, you know, the, the, the sort of black letter law on this is that they're not, uh, they're not binding themselves. Dear Colleague letters are not binding. But of course, as a matter of practice, all schools you know, follow Dear Colleague letters because they don't want to lose their federal funding, which raises a, not just in this area of law, but in all areas of regulation, profound questions about agencies making significant policy changes, not through that transparent notice and comment process, but rather through these guidance documents. I have to admit, as somebody who doesn't specialize in education law, but I I bump up against it from time to time, I've always been struck by the term dear colleague letter. It almost sounds a little Orwellian because, of course, the people in the Justice Department Civil Rights Division and the people in the Education Department Civil Rights Division or Civil Rights Office, they're not technically colleagues of the schools that they are regulating. Um, but I've always thought that's just still sort of an amusing and somewhat Orwellian name for the document. Uh, yeah,
0: sort of, uh, we uh, it's like dear friend and yeah. <laughs> somebody's got a little knife in your back as they're saying it, right? Right. <laughs> right.
1: It's like, it's like letters that one lawyer sends to an opposing counsel saying, my, my dear, esteemed colleague.
0: <laughs> well, so now the Trump administration, though, announcing a, an intention to reconsider this, hasn't withdrawn it. So is there something more you know, substantial to this document than uh, the Trump uh, department uh, originally was implying?
1: Well, I saw rumblings early in the year that Secretary DeVos, news, these are news stories, the Secretary DeVos was reconsidering it. And obviously, there's been public pressure in both directions since then, with no outcome yet by the secretary. That delay could indicate a few things. Uh, first of all, it could just reflect hesitancy on the part of the secretary herself, on the advice of her staff, to make a major change. Because, after all, while disparate impact theory is itself—or uh, this, sorry—disparate impact theory of discrimination is itself a controversial subject. Of course, the entire matter of uh, discipline in, in schools is itself immensely uh, controversial, especially with the the, the the racial aspects of this. And so even uh, what one possibility is that Secretary DeVos may be prepared to re- rescind this document and replace it with something else, but she's still working on what precisely to replace it with. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that an issue of this sensitivity or this magnitude uh, may be the subject of interagency discussions uh, between the education department and other departments. I mean, after all... The Dear Colleague letter from 2014 was itself already a multi-agency document. It was published by the Education Department and the Justice Department, their respective civil rights offices. The issue of disparate impact, as we've already discussed, goes well beyond just the area of education. Of course, education is important, but also on housing policy, on government contracts and other policies. So it's quite possible that the administration as a whole is undertaking an interagency process trying to grapple not just with the legal question for which the Justice Department lawyers and the lawyers of all the other agencies surely have you know, comments and, and, and debate amongst themselves, but then there's also the question of the policy ramification of that legal debate, which goes across agencies. And so it's quite possible that this delay reflects either debates within the Education Department or debates across agencies under the oversight of the White House.
0: Well, that sounds to me like uh, a good explanation for why this could be uh, a slow-moving uh, uh, development rather than something that's going to be tweeted out uh, in an afternoon. Uh, so, uh, there's been a lot of speculation out there, and the idea that yes, it's it's got to be uh, it's got to be vetted with a lot of different agencies uh, makes sense to me.
1: There's one other possibility I just want to allude to. As I said, you know, just the fact of guidance documents is itself a controversial issue across agencies on questions of how agencies should promulgate new policies. The Justice Department itself has recently led the way on on reforming its own use of guidance documents. And so the, the agency's efforts to reform the substance of this document might also get caught up in um, – interagency discussions about how to proceed with guidance documents in general. So that's another possibility for why there's delay right now.
0: So perhaps the real question is, do they want to simply withdraw it or do they want to uh, withdraw it and replace it with something else? And uh, making that decision will, will will not be uh, all all that easy. Well, turning to the higher education uh, admission policies uh, topic that uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, the big development in the last few years has been a case that's gone back and forth between the Supreme Court and the lower courts uh, that involves the University of Texas uh, and its uh, admission policies and uh, it, when you look at the final decision that was handed down by the court uh, uh, last year uh, or was it the year before uh, it, it it's it's it seemed to me that this could have been a modification of the famous Bakke case. Um, Is it now the case that racial criteria can be evoked if you cannot get diversity on the campus in any other way?
1: Yeah, this is the the, the Bakke case of 2016. Uh, It was a case heard by just seven of the justices uh, because Justice Scalia had passed away and was not yet replaced, and, and Justice Kagan was recused. But in this case, the court did reaffirm the basic principle in Bakke, um, that it is okay in limited circumstances, ostensibly limited circumstances, to use uh, uh, racial criteria uh, in admissions for the purposes of promoting diversity. Uh, the court that up front in its opinion, and in the earlier iteration of the case, which I think was from 2013, they said that schools relying on race in, in admissions uh, will be subject to what we call strict scrutiny, which is the, the most rigorous standard of judicial review that the courts employ when, uh, when reviewing claims of constitutional rights being violated, in this case the right to equal protection of the law, the right to um, racial discrimination. Um, But in its actual practice in the second Fisher case in 2016, the court was very, very deferential to the school's explanation, the pedagogical explanations, for why uh, student body diversity was important to the school's um, mission, the school's education.
0: The Supreme Court was not as strict as my third grade teacher was? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes teachers are stricter than they are at other times, and so the court said, you know, just in the case of Fisher, that you know, when a school formulates an explanation for how it's going to use diversity, then the court should be very strict in reviewing the extent to which that approach really is narrowly tailored um, to 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 not go overboard in using race, but the, but with the at the same time that. Court is very deferential toward the school's own description or reasoning of why racial diversity is important. And so it became a real muddle. If anything, Fisher two really muddied the waters of Fisher One. Fisher one sounded much more like uh, sounded much more strict in terms of the school's uses of, of race and admissions.
0: But well, the, let, that's let's talk what about
1: really watered it down.
0: Let's talk about Fisher One here now. Fisher Fisher One was decided when, in 2012, was it? 2013. 2013. So in that case, they simply say uh, to the lower court, uh, "You got to take a closer look at this because you haven't given strict scrutiny of the practices at the University of Texas." Is that, is that Fisher One?
1: Yeah, that's how I, that's how I remember it. That the court reminded the Fifth Circuit that it did need to use strict scrutiny in um, reviewing these admissions, except that then in 2016 when the—and and that, was, by the way, was was an opinion by Justice Kennedy. Now, when you get to Fisher II three years later, the Fifth Circuit, the, the federal court system down in, in, in the South, including Texas, um, had reaffirmed its decision upholding uh, Texas's admissions policy. And the case got back to the Supreme Court. Justice Kennedy again reviewing the policy uh, held that strict scrutiny was applied and that Texas still uh, carried its burden of justifying its
0: policy. So you're saying that actually there is no modification of the Bakke rule, but isn't there a quota in Texas?
1: there was, and I, I don't want to say that Fisher affirmed Baki in every respect. I'm sure there are some ways in which the cases following Baki, leading up to Fisher, have adjusted, you know, the Baki, the Baki approach. But yes, the, the 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 approach in Texas in the Fisher cases, it was a mix of things. There was a system of admission for students across all schools, uh, sorry, statewide, uh, which itself um by taking the top students from all schools, um, itself lent to diversity. But on top of that, the school layered another sort of set of racial quotas. And that's what the Supreme Court upheld in Fisher II.
0: So one of the facts that's just mentioned in passing by the court uh, when they handed down Fisher II was to say that there's no evidence that Asian Americans uh, were discriminated against, even though Asian Americans were not considered a minority in the case. Um, Now, one of the things about that that always has struck me was, why did the state, the defense in this case, why didn't they... um, uh, present evidence that other groups were being discriminated against by the procedures at the University of Texas?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I, I, I frankly don't know the, the reasoning behind Texas's justification of its program. But you are absolutely right that in the court's opinion, they, uh, the court, the justices and the majority allude to the fact that there are these questions very generally about the impact that Texas's Affirmative Action Program was having on not just white applicants, but also Asian-Americans. Now, as you indicated, the court was able to sidestep that issue by saying that there was no evidence in the record or other empirical data um, that the court could rely upon that showed uh, racial discrimination against Asian-Americans in in Texas's process. Now, that's an important thing to keep in mind, because, again... The review of the Texas admissions policy was limited in the Fisher case to the record at hand, Texas's record, the the statistics regarding Texas's admissions. And so it can't be taken as categorically affirming every school's affirmative action policies, which becomes very significant in the new rounds of cases where affirmative action uh, admissions programs... Uh, negative impacts on Asian-American students is becoming much more prominent.
0: Is this the kind of an issue that's inevitably going to work itself up to the high court?
1: Well, I think so. Sometimes these things take a very long time. But obviously the the, the political, I, I'd say the the issue of schools, uh, we'll say unintentionally uh, discriminating against Asian-Americans, in their admissions policies has become a much more salient issue. I know this has been a, uh, an issue, um, the subject of a lawsuit up at Harvard. I don't know where that lawsuit is headed. I don't know, you know, I wouldn't make any predictions on its particular merits one way or the other, but I do think that, that, that the fact that that lawsuit is pending um, is itself sort of a sign of the times, that there's more attention being paid to these issues. Um, And that in the long run, I'd be surprised if one of these cases didn't get to the Supreme Court.
0: Well, one of the uh, indicators of whether a case is going to get to the Supreme Court, I think, is whether or not a practice out there is uh, uh, consonant with uh, public opinion on an issue. Uh, And uh, uh, affirmative action is something the public likes, but they don't like quotas. And so um, they, when I ask specifically about uh, a practice uh, such as uh, what's going on, uh, th- there's not much support for it among the public. Uh, that's what we find at uh, Education Next poll. So if the court should rule on this, they wouldn't necessarily be, and they should rule against the university it wouldn't be that they were actually going against public opinion.
1: That's right. I think the conventional wisdom about the court is it tends not to stray too far from public opinion too much of the time. I mean, of course, it does from time to time. But, 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 but by and large, the court tends to be, I think, a reasonable reflection of the American public, with some notable exceptions. Um, the basic—the way this— case would rise to the Supreme Court, is it would be what we call circuit splits. Um, as multiple cases arise in different courts across the country, you're going to get disagreement among the courts about what the state of the law is under the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment and under the civil rights laws. Um, and so once you get federal courts disagreeing with one another, uh, that is when the Supreme Court tends to intervene. Now, the court can intervene in major issues of public policy absent one of these splits among the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, But quite frankly, this particular subject seems the kind for which the court will await a circuit split. A circuit split probably won't take very long to arise, probably within the next decade. And then the court will intervene to resolve this difference of opinion among the lower courts.
0: That's all very fascinating. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Adam. I've uh, enjoyed uh, this uh, illumination of the affirmative action issue as it's developing in the uh, first quarter of the 21st century.
1: Well, thank you, Paul. It's a very fascinating time to be keeping an eye on the Supreme Court and an eye on education policy and the combination of those two. Thanks for something even more interesting. So thank you very much for having me
0: on. Well, I've been speaking with Adam White, director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, and he is also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Thank you, Adam, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the EducationX website every Monday at noon Eastern time.